Yeah, um, well, the first one, it was, I got a number for Boston through my running club through Gate City back in 2009. I, actually, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was 2009. And, you know, I had trained pretty well, I thought. And I had, you know, I... I I can't remember what my goal was. I, I was hoping to. I think I was probably hoping to break four hours because I'm not a. I'm not a world class runner by all means. And I was doing. I was doing the uh, Galloway, the walk walk break method, and it was going pretty well. And I, I'm coming down towards Boylston, and I hear somebody saying, "Bill Rogers is up ahead of you." I'm like, "Huh, Bill Rogers? What?" I ended up running and catching up to Bill Rogers. I ran kind of next to Bill Rogers, and my finish line photo, Bill Rogers is right behind me, waving to the crowd. So I had to buy that, and 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 you know, in fact, a couple of years ago, uh, one of my fellow coaches and friend of mine, Dave Salvis, he his kids that he coached for got him a, a some kind of an, a gift that ended ended up he had a, a run with Bill Rogers and he could bring somebody, and I have no not upset at all that I was his second choice because his first choice couldn't make it, but I <laughs> I got to go with Dave Salvis to run with Bill Rogers. We ran at uh, the Concord, um, Concord Mass there in the battlefield area. It was beautiful. And I had a copy of the picture of that I had him sign for me. And he's like, oh, can you send me one of those? I'm like, I already made you one. Here you go. Hello, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walkable podcast coming to you from the Ascend Human Performance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you and welcome back. So, this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, pull to the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, teammates, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Richie Blake is my guest this week. Oftentimes, the decisions we make as teenagers have a profound impact on the trajectory of our lives, as was the case for Richie. If not for a friend talking him into going out for the cross-country team in seventh grade, it's hard to imagine things would have turned out the way they did. When running is recreation, avocation, and occupation, it's fair to say it's an important part of life. As an athlete, a coach, and a business owner, he shares valuable insights on a life spent in a lifetime sport. Well, here he is, Richie Blake. Richie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. It's nice to see you. Good to see you as well. It's been too long. It has been quite a quite a while. Um, you know, I, as I was as I was preparing for the show, um, I, I realized that you and I have a number of things in common, and uh, and one thing in particular I, I sort of like to open the show with, and and that's and that's this. Um, in the early nineties, um, uh, I lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, and, uh, Karen, my wife and I used to shop at the Winn-Dixie 
which was just at the bottom of the hill. And, um, you know, we, I, I grew up in New Hampshire. And uh, so this was my first experience living in the South. And, um, you know, it, it only took me a, a, a couple of times uh, to, uh, to, to shop at the Winn-Dixie uh, before I brought home my first uh, die cast NASCAR. Well, it wasn't a NASCAR car. It was actually a Bush series car. Um, and uh, it was the Mark Martin number 60 Winn-Dixie car. You remember that car? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, uh, Mark, yeah. At that time, uh, Mark Martin was driving uh, in the in the Bush series part time. He was a NASCAR driver, but but he was sponsored by Winn-Dixie or Winn-Dixie sponsored his Bush car. So naturally, the grocery store Winn-Dixie had the Mark Martin diecast uh, uh, car. So I, I, I bought one. And uh, I mean, I, I, I wasn't really much into diecast cars at the time. But, you know, when <laughs> as a northerner, when you move to the south, they give you a handbook, you know, and it, it's a Southern handbook, right? It's, and it's all the, like, it's all the stuff you got to know uh, as a Northerner living in the South. Right. Uh, and it, and it was in North Carolina that, um, you know, that, that, that I had my, my first experiences with uh, moonshine, uh, real Southern fried chicken mm. uh, and, and NASCAR. Right. Uh, and, and this was, this was the early nineties. Of course, you, you can, you can appreciate the nineties were the heyday of, of NASCAR. All right. So here's my point of that, Richie. I know that, I know that you're a NASCAR fan as well. In fact, you've, you've been a NASCAR fan a lot longer than I have. I, I only got into the sport, uh, in, in the nineties. Um, and, and so I, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of, uh, I'm going to tap into your memory a little bit about the about nascar in the 1990s because this was my first experience with the sport and um and 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 i'm wondering if um uh if some of the things i'm going to mention will bring back some memories all right so we're going to do a little a little walk down nascar memory lane i'm going to give you it'll almost be a little bit like a word association sounds good okay so i'm going to kind of test you i'm going to kind of test your not that I'm testing your knowledge of NASCAR because I, I'm, you're a very experienced NASCAR fan. And I'm just, I'm just curious if, uh, if, if these things will, uh, will strike a chord with you. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. Again, this, we're talking about the 1990s NASCAR in the 1990s, right? Arguably the heyday of, of, of NASCAR racing, the number three car. Everybody knows that one. Well, well, <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, NASCAR fans know that one. The number three car. What is that? What, 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 what word association? What, 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 what name do you think about? What do you think about when I say the number three car? The Intimidator, Dale Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt. Um, uh, I, I mean, one of the greatest NASCAR drivers of all time. In fact, though, in the 1990s, a new driver emerged, a young buck emerged in the 1990s, right? Yeah. Who would become, who would become a big rival of, of Dale Earnhardt. And this young driver would, 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 would garner a following of his own. Of course, he would go on to have a hall of fame career in, 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 in and of itself. What do you think when I say the DuPont Chevy number 24? I knew before you even said that I knew it was Jeff Gordon. <laughs> so, so 
I, I think I know the answer to this, but but Dale Earnhardt or Jeff Gordon, who 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 are you a more of a fan of, or who you were a fan of in the 1990s? Who was your guy? My guy was always Bill Elliott. <laughs> okay, the, the number nine, but. I, I do prefer Dale Earnhardt over Jeff Gordon. Okay, fair, fair. In fact, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the number nine, uh, Bill Elliott. Do you remember what his moniker was, what his nickname was? Million Dollar Bill. Yeah. He, or, Million Dollar or Bill. Awesome Bill from Dawsonville. Awesome Bill from Dawsonville. Uh, of course, Bill Elliott uh, has a son now that's currently racing uh, in NASCAR, and his name is? Chase Elliott, and Chase he's Elliott. got the number nine back, which is nice. Pretty cool, right? Um, yeah, and kind of a NASCAR is sort of interesting in that way, and that there's a there, there's a there's a legacy component to it, right? There's a family component to NASCAR. Uh, of course, we you know you, you just mentioned you mentioned Bill Elliott and his son Chase. Um, when you think of the the family component, the legacy component to NASCAR, what are some other what are some other NASCAR legacies, NASCAR families that come to mind when you think about that? I mean, you can't really can't talk NASCAR without the Petties, Richard and Kyle and uh, the Waltrips, Michael, um, Daryl, um, the Allisons from years ago. I mean, I go way back. Yeah. Um, you yeah. Know, and even a lot of the newer drivers now, they have family that ran, whether it was NASCAR or Bush or even up here in, in New England in the Modifieds and stuff. So um, it. Is that family component, Richie? Is that is that something that draws you to the sport? I think it's probably part of it. And it's funny because every year, a lot of you know, a lot of fans like myself, we get frustrated about all the new rules that come in. And and I know they're trying to make the competition equal and this and that, but but I still can't get away from it. It's still I still enjoy watching it. Mm. And, and I have family that actually races in in local tracks in the American Canadian Tour. You know, throughout New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, Canada, you know, Joey Paul Watsick, Joey Paul Racing. Um, in fact, I just watched him a few weeks ago down in uh, Waterford, Connecticut. Uh, so it's, it's still still in my family and it's still in my blood. Mm. Well, it's interesting that, um, you know, for, for you, someone who grew up uh, in New England uh, would be uh, would 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 be such a fan of, of, of stock car racing or auto racing in general. I mean, typically when we think of, of auto racing, specifically when we think of NASCAR racing, we think of it as being a southern sport. And it and it, the origination, the origins of NASCAR really were as a southern sport. Um, but but to your point, um uh, stock car racing has existed uh, in the Northeast for for many 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 years. My family uh, has connections to to stock car racing uh, here in the Northeast as well, uh, and, uh, and and so I, again, I, I sort of I, I think about the the family component to it, right? Uh, I mean, again, it's sort of a rite of passage if you grow up in the South that you're going to be a fan of stock car racing, but that's not necessarily the case here in the Northeast. Um, that, that, that typically there is some family connection. Again, we were talking about the family connection, uh, angle as it relates to stock car racing within stock car racing. But I, but again, I, I think, it, I think as a kid, if you grow up in the Northeast and you're into stock car racing, almost certainly it's because you have some family connection to it. Don't you agree? Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it, I mean, it was hard for NASCAR to break in up here. We just have that one track up in New Hampshire, um, Loudoun International. And, you know, even some of the drivers that originated up here, once they went south to race with the, with the you know, the, the big boys, 
they had a they weren't treated quite the same it was i think it's much better now it was it was it's almost like some of the south was still fighting the civil war in a way but <laughs> well well having having lived in the south myself um between uh you know north carolina and kentucky in the very early 90s i can tell you for sure that they the south is still fighting the civil war they are they're really they're still pissed off that they lost uh, not surprisingly. Um, well, I, you know, I, I also have sort of, there's another interesting connection about, about my time in, in Winston-Salem and, uh, and, and I'm eager to kind of get your, your take on this. Um, uh, uh, RJ Reynolds tobacco company is based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And in 1971, um, Congress passed a law that prohibited tobacco companies from advertising their products on TV. So uh, R.J. Reynolds Company, uh, which is a, you know a, one of the largest tobacco manufacturers in the world, um, uh, saw potentially their profits taking a huge hit because uh, they weren't able to advertise uh, cigarettes uh, on TV anymore. So <laughs> in a very clever workaround, uh, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company began looking for opportunities to sponsor sports. Uh, uh, therefore, sort of in a in a in a passive way, uh, <laughs> getting their products uh, uh, and or their brands out in front of millions of people as as a as 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 a sponsor even if it wasn't a tv ad um it was still an opportunity to to advertise their brand so uh rj reynolds tobacco company uh, approached uh nascar uh and i don't know if it was bill if it was bill france at the time bill france, or, yeah yeah at the time right and um they 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 came to agreement that rj reynolds would sponsor the NASCAR's sort of premier series. And they would name that premier series after one of their brands. Richie, do you remember what, and this was 1971. In fact, the naming uh, of this, of the series persisted from 1971 to 2003. Do you remember what the. Oh yeah. The Winston cup series in, in, in my opinion, I mean, I, I know tobacco was big bucks in my opinion, when they were, I, I think they were kind of forced to, to leave because of some kind of new laws or something. And I think that was when NASCAR started to kind of change and, and, and a lot of our minds went a little bit downhill. And, and it's funny because like I said, I grew up as a little kid watching NASCAR Winston Cup and all that. And I never smoked. I never had a desire to smoke. I mean, it's like, it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Right. For sure. Uh, and, and <laughs> uh, I, I, I I just think it's an it's a it's an it's an interesting story, right? That um, uh, that that R.J. Reynolds saw this workaround, right? They, you know, Congress passed a law. Uh, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, you know, give them credit. They figured out a way to work around it, and uh, <laughs> they got their they got their brand out in front of millions of people. Now, this was 1971. Um, now I wasn't a NASCAR fan growing up. You and I are the same. You and I are the same age. So this is the, the early 1970s. Um, I mean, I was I was I was very much into sports and all sports, but not NASCAR in particular. In fact, in the early 1970s, you probably remember it. It was somewhat of a challenge to be a NASCAR fan because NASCAR was not televised live. 
uh, on TV in, in throughout the 1970s until 1979, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, uh, the 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 big NASCAR races were uh, were taped and then and then sort of shown as sort of kind of clips and 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 almost like a, uh, almost like highlights of the race on the old worldwide uh, worldwide, worldwide sports. sports. Yeah. Remember that worldwide oh, yeah. sports had all these it had all these like crazy offbeat sports, right? Like, uh, of course, you remember the, the the very famous intro to the to, to worldwide sports that that ski the jumper, skier. right? Yeah, right yeah. before right before he gets to the end of the ski jump, he kind of tries to bail and he he goes flopping and flipping through the air. Well, that's that's what NASCAR was televised on, but it, but it wasn't live. It was basically highlights of the big premier big premier races, but that all changed. In February of 1979, um, uh, in 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 which, um, for the first time ever, a NASCAR premier stock car race was going to be shown from 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 green flag to checkers, from start to finish. 1979, February 1979. Do you remember, or do you remember the story about that? Do you remember what race that was? The Daytona 500. It was, in fact, the Daytona 500. Now, um, interestingly enough, and I didn't I didn't remember this. You and I were 11 at the time. Um, I don't remember this, but in but in reading a little bit of the history of it. Um, that weekend, um, there was a big snowstorm in the northeast. The northeast got pummeled with snow that weekend. So NASCAR kind of had this this sort of perfect confluence of variables, this huge snowstorm in the Northeast sort of created this captive audience. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot to do outside because we were buried in snow up here in the Northeast. And for the first time ever, um, the Daytona 500 was going to be, was going to be aired from, from checkered, from green to checkers. Now in a stroke of just pure luck, that race ended up, in a very dramatic finish. And in fact, a very dramatic incident would happen post race. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to see how much you remember about this. You're, you're smiling and shaking your head. So, so I, I'm, I have a feeling, you know what, you know, what's coming, right? So I believe so. Okay. So earlier in the race, earlier in the race, Cale Yarborough tapped Bobby Allison, one of the Allison brothers, he tapped him in the, in the, in the back bumper and he caused Bobby Allison to, to kind of lose control of the vehicle and crash. Okay. Well, Bobby Allison would get back in the race, but he, but he, he wouldn't contend. Well, Bobby Allison's brother, Donnie Allison was also in the race. And on the last lap, Cale Yarborough and Donnie Allison were battling for the lead. They were, they were, they were side by side. Right. Something happened and they, they, they got into each other, causing them both to crash out. Now, the third place driver was like some some like 17 seconds back. And that third place driver. Known as the king. <laughs> would go from third place, 17 seconds back to winning his third Daytona 500. Of course, the king was. Richard Petty. Richard Petty would win his third Daytona 500 there in 1979. Well, 
Cale Yarborough and Donnie Allison would crash out and both vehicles would end up uh, in, on the infield or, at, or in the inside of the track. Uh, well, Bobby Allison would make his way around the track and would, and would pull up behind the two. What would happen next would solidify NASCAR uh, in the hearts and minds of, of casual viewers, right? In the Northeast. Again, it, it was a, it had a huge following in the South, but it really didn't have a huge following in the Northeast. But what would happen next would result in the most iconic, unplanned, unscripted, maybe very, very NASCAR-like moment. Tell the story from that point forward, Richie. Do you remember what happened? You know, it's funny. Now that I think about it, I wonder if uh, Northeast grew gained a lot of fans because of you know our love for hockey up here and a lot of people like the hockey fights and that was a heck of a brawl down off the turn infield to turn four i believe it was <laughs> <laughs> that's right kale yarborough would would get out of his vehicle and he would take his helmet off and he was he started swinging his helmet uh at at donnie allison's car donnie allison of course would get out of his car uh, at the same time, Bobby Allison was showing up on, on the scene and it was this massive brawl with Cale Yarborough swinging his helmet at Donnie Allison. Their crews would come and try to break it up. All of it, of course, was being broadcast live on yeah. TV, right? <laughs> so it, it's a really good, it's a really good point, Richie, that, that hockey angle, um, arguably, arguably the, just, the just the perfect storm of, 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 of events to happen. First of all, it was a, it was a phenomenal finish, right? Those two cars side by side on the final lap, uh, and then, uh, crashing out. And of course, Richard Petty, the King would go on to take, take the win. Uh, and then, and then the, the then the fight that would break out, uh, uh, uh in the infield. Um, my last, my, my last NASCAR related question is this, Richie. Um, you know, there have been a number of movies made, about stock car racing over the years. I'm curious, um, Talladega Nights or Days of Thunder? <laughs> I think for the comedic effect, uh, it's got to be Talladega Nights. <laughs> you wouldn't disagree, though, that Days of Thunder is probably the best NASCAR action-related movie ever made. Yeah I, I, yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, you could go back even further. Stroke a race. Stroke a race with Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, but sure. yeah, yeah. No, I think Days of Thunder was, it was very well done. Um, well, I I, I appreciate you uh, uh, humoring me there for for a few minutes talking about NASCAR. Um, Richie, for the listener who doesn't know Richie Blake, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Depending on where I am, I'm with all my most of my running friends. I'm Richie Blake with some people I work with, I'm just Rich Blake with, you know, one of my jobs, it was much more formal. I was, I went by Richard, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's just me. <laughs> I'm adaptable. I don't care what people call me. I mean, sometimes it's not nice things, but I don't care. <laughs> well, I, I, well, then those people clearly don't know you. Um, what, um, what, tell the listener, what, what do you do professionally? Yeah, uh, right now I actually am in charge of a, a race timing company. Uh, we time road races. It's uh, Yankee Timing. It's been around since I'm thinking the early '80s, maybe. Uh, the guy that 
started it, Dave Kamir. He was also the founder of well, the co-founder of CoolRunning.com, which to everybody's, at least in New England's, not happiness. Uh, my words go blank sometimes. Yep. It does. No, it no longer exists. Um, when he sold it to Active, they ended up moving all the operations overseas, and they just stopped keeping up the website, and they let it die, which which was a shame because. I think it affected a lot of road races up in the New England area where it was free advertisement, then you know, free calendar. Everybody knew where the races were. It was a one-stop shop where it find races and results. And now if you're going to find a race, you'd have to go to a, you know, the, the race promoters website or, you know, maybe run USA or this is, there's really not one specific place anymore, but I'm uh, kind of getting off track a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, Dave Kamir, he seemed to have a knack of, starting things up from his hobby and making a business out of them. And um, I got lucky enough to, I get, oh, I don't know if it's lucky. I, I, I had an injury. I'm fast forwarding like 2001, 2002. I had some kind of an injury. So instead of running one of his race series, I was just hanging around and said, Hey, you need any help? It's like, yeah, do you know how to use a time machine? Like I can learn. It was a manual time race. So I was sitting there hitting buttons on the time machine and for probably four or five weeks in a row, I was helping him out. And he's like, you know, you, you're, you, you, you have a knack for that kind of stuff. You ever think about want to help time some racism? Like, sure. So I kind of got into timing that way and uh, I've been timing races ever since. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned cool running and, and clearly there's uh, you know, that there were a number of gaps that were left uh, in the, in really the, all of the racing scene here in the Northeast when, when cool running was, was disbanded. Um, obviously the the race search functionality to be able to you know find a race but more importantly for me as a race director it was the um historical record keeping uh, of results mm -hmm. and i mean i can't tell you uh, all of our early snowshoe racing results were posted to cool running um i don't know that i necessarily saved or housed them anywhere else they were hand timed initially and uh you know clipboard and and stopwatch and and a and a pen and paper and that's how we timed races i would then translate that to a a, a format that worked for cool running and i would upload the results and i didn't keep them anywhere else and so when yeah. cool running went under uh, so too did our historical record of results that was the way that they were kept so so that was a big bummer um uh, and, and, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I'm sort of surprised that, that nobody stepped in and, and filled that, filled that void, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of one managed race calendar, one centralized race calendar, and also, you know, one centralized place to house results. Yeah. I know a few people have have tried and thought about it and i guess it just came down to it it wasn't lucrative or something i don't know that was but yeah, good point shame. good point yeah with many of those things it doesn't it always come down to money um well let's let's talk a little bit about um how you and i came to know each other now i think i think i know the story um but as always my my memory gets a little fuzzy with time so i'm going to have you help fill in the gaps of, of my memory. As I was thinking about it, Richie, um, I, Hey guys, 
That was Tucker and Boone making an appearance once again on the podcast. <laughs> Tucker was barking to come inside, and then he came inside and barked, just exactly what I didn't want him to do. <laughs> I was looking back through some uh, some old emails, and um, I think I found what was the well, what was the at least the origins of your involvement with Asadotic Racing, my event management company, my racing team. And that was an email that I received from you in 2009, I'm, I'm going to say. And it was, um, you, you had reached out to, well, I, I think the way the story goes, and, and again, th this is, this is your involvement with, with acidotic racing. Um, but it, but our relationship probably predates that. And again, here's where you'll, you'll be able to help me. But I, I think it's, I think it's related to snowshoe racing as, as most of the, as most of the important relationships that I've made over the years have been, uh, related to snowshoe racing. Uh, I think what it was is Michael Amarello was a member of acidotic racing at the time. And at that time, um, new members needed a, a current member to sponsor them, basically vouch for their vouch for their character. Okay. Right. So, um, for some reason, and again, you'll, 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 you'll help tell this part of the story. Um, Michael Amarello was your acidotic racing sponsor. He's the one that stood up and vouched for you because the, the, the first email I received from you, there was a, there was a forwarded message as part of that email from, from Michael, basically Michael telling you, you know, you know, Hey, listen, myself, Steve Wolf, uh, are part of this snowshoe racing team called acidotic racing. Chris Dunn's the guy you need to talk to. And he included my, he included my, my email address also as part of this email. And you'll help me to maybe, maybe you'll, you'll recall who he was talking about. He, he mentioned any, so he, he said, you know, you, you should reach out to this guy, Chris Dunn. He's the, he's the guy that, that, that's involved with acidotic racing. At the time, Michael said, OB, OB may also be interested. Yep. Now I don't, for, I couldn't for the life of me figure out who that was. You're, it sounds like, you know, who that was. So, um, Richie, tell the backstory. How did, how did you and I met through snowshoe racing, but where? This is 2009 and you become a member of acidotic racing. We must've met before that though. Yeah. Um, I had, I can't remember how it came about exactly, but Mike, Mike Amarillo must've said something about snowshoe racing and it's a lot of fun and this and that. So I headed up to the Atkinson country club and it was my first ever snowshoe race. And it was probably one of the hardest, but funnest things I've ever done. It was like, I explain it to people. It's like, you know how you feel when you run a quarter really hard and you can't breathe the whole, you know, the second half on I'm like, that's how this feels the whole time. But if you're running on the roads now, when you feel like that, you kind of slow down because you want to breathe. But if you're running snowshoes, you keep going. Cause that's just how it is. Uh, and I remember talking to Mike afterwards and he's like, Oh yeah, there's uh, there's a, there's a team acidotic. They're, they're great. Um, and OB, OB is Keith O'Brien who actually still coaches at Tingsboro. He, he kind of started coaching there after I left, or I think we overlapped a little bit and he still coaches there. He's actually been very successful coach, but uh, 
Keith O'Brien, great. He's, he's one of, again, he'll give you the shirt off his back, but he's really good at procrastinating. So he never joined. Even to this day, he still talks about Acidotic all the time, but he still hasn't joined, which is kind of funny. Uh, and as far as me joining and getting in, it was not blowing smoke, but it's one of the best things I've done. It, it's, like I say, I've been a member of Greater Lowell Roadrunners. I still consider myself a member, even though I haven't paid dues in years. I'm a member of Gate City Striders, but to me, acidotic is is the purest it's real they're not in it for anything except for the runner and and they're truly doing it for charity and and it's it's just real people it's not it's not political like some running clubs can get well i i I appreciate that that perspective uh on acidotic racing from uh from a member I mean, that's what, that's what we always tried. It's what we always pursued, right. Was this, uh, sort of family feel to, uh, to a racing club really about creating this community, you know, that, that, that initially was, was, was built and created around snowshoe racing because that's, well, initially it was, it was created and built around adventure racing, but, um, but from an event management standpoint, and really when the when the when the when the the group really started to grow was during those early years in in snowshoe racing 2007, 2008, 2009, when you became involved with acidotic racing and you're 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 still a you're still a loyal member even to this day. Um, it, it's uh, yeah, it, it well. It, it, you would you would become a a, a a a valuable member of the community very quickly uh, once once I learned that you uh, uh, that you had an interest in and in expertise in timing. <laughs> you have you have bailed me out many many times over the years with timing timing related questions. I am very much a neophyte when it comes to timing. Um, but, um, but you've, you've always been there to, to kind of help me work through it. You've actually, you've actually timed a number of our, of our events, um, and, uh, and, 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 and assisted, uh, in, in helping to time a number of our events as well. So, uh, so you are a very, a very, very valuable, valuable member. What, um, you know, when you think back to those, those early days of snowshoe racing, in fact, I was, I was looking at some photos uh, Janina Lindsay, uh, our, our, my neighbor, our teammate, uh, Tim and Janina Lindsay, Janina would, would come and, and take photographs at, at, at the snowshoe races in the, uh, you know, in the, in the late, late 2000, uh, early 2000s, 2009 to 2012, 13, 14, something like that. So it's fun to go back and, and, and look at, uh, 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 at her photos, yeah, she did a great job. I love I love when those memories pop up. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> what what other than other than running on snowshoes feeling like your heart's going to explode. What 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 else do you remember about about those days? You, who are some of the characters you remember about uh, 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 you know during that time or 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 some of the races or or some of the conditions that we raced in what 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 are your memories of, of snowshoe racing oh, I, I remember we actually used to have a lot of snow which was fun uh, i'll never forget the wamber <laughs> was, was was invented during one of your races uh, so yeah so let let's pay that off because that's a that's a great reference the wamber so the, <laughs> you're you're referring to uh amber ferrera 
uh, our, our, our dear teammate, uh, Amber is uh, now a professional triathlete in, uh, you know, in her own right. But Amber raced for acidotic racing for a short period of time. And, and, uh, was it, was it feel good farm? Was that, was that the I, Michael's race that that yeah, happened? I think it was feel good farm. It had the big hill to loop up and down the hill. Yeah. Feel, feel good farm. Um, yeah. And then the bonfire at the bottom. Oh, that yep. was great. Yep. And Amber somehow managed to step through her snowshoe with one snowshoe. She ended up stepping through her other snowshoe, um, stuck together, <laughs> hopelessly getting them stuck together. Right. And, uh, and she found herself on the ground. I can't remember who it was. It might've been our teammate, Rich Lavers, who I think was racing behind her at the time. Um, and I think as the story goes, rather than stopping to help her, Rich, uh, uh, Rich just basically ran around her and just <laughs> kept going because he saw it as an opportunity, like for the first time ever to, to beat her. <laughs> Somebody must have stopped and, and helped her to helped her to undo her snowshoes. That that was from that point forward called called a whamber, uh, stepping through uh, one snowshoe with the other snowshoe. Right. Hopelessly uh, causing the snowshoes to, to tangle together. Um, that's that's a great memory. Uh what what and what else? What what that, else do you remember? That same race, I might be mistaken. I'll have to look it up. I think that might be the last time I ever beat DJ Principe in a race. <laughs> that kid is good. And I mean he was probably 13 at the time or something. So you know, he's meeting what whatever, 40, 30, something, whatever, being proud of beating a little kid, but man, he, he was he was he was classy. He was so kid. so fair to say that that DJ Principe uh was a was a nemesis of yours back in back in those snowshoe races. As days. young as he was, we were always we always seemed to be near each other. In fact, there was one race, um, the the one Kevin Tilton has up in North yeah, Whitaker, Conway, Whitaker Woods. Whitaker Woods and DJ and I, we were going at each other. So good. We missed a turn. So we both went the wrong way. We both went the same wrong way. And I didn't realize I went the wrong way until I think it was you and, and a few other guys come running by and like, Oh, did you guys go the wrong way? And like, no, you did. <laughs> uh, that was a great one. Uh, I remember the one in Salem, Mass. There was one and they had a big snowstorm. And it was so deep, I ended up wearing my old wooden snowshoes. <laughs> if it wasn't for the old leather straps breaking, because I hadn't worn them in probably 20 years, it, 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 I would have done a lot better. But I finished. It was a lot of fun. Old Old Salem Green, uh, yeah, I, I think was that was the race That's you're right. talking about. In I think it was uh, a four miler. Yeah, um, around the was it a golf course? I think it was a golf course. Hard to say because we had I think we had almost two feet of snow that yeah. time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, just, just great memories really. Um, when, when, when snowshoe racing eventually when, when the series sort of disbanded and, and snowshoe races started to, to disappear, um, what did you do? What did you do with yourself in the winter time? <laughs> yeah, I just, I ended up having to just run outside instead of snowshoe outside every once in a while. I mean, I guess I could have drove drove an hour or two north and find some snow, but I mean, I kind of got lucky around here. Every once in a while, there's a good storm here, Benson Park. Uh, when I grew up, it was Benson's Animal Farm, but um, it's right. like depending on which way I go, it's two two and a half miles from my apartment. So most of my runs actually include running through the trails. They have a great trail system, so I, it's it's really awesome for snowshoeing as well. Mm. 
do you uh, do you still run in snowshoes sometimes in the winter? Yep, yep. As long as we have enough snow, I'm out there. Yeah, um, and don't you find that uh, running in snowshoes is a is a great way to build fitness in the winter time during during a time for most runners in which um, they see their fitness begin to sort of drop off because running quality obviously suffers as a road runner, right? Cause road conditions are horrible here in the Northeast in the wintertime. You just can't get the same quality work on the roads. And as trail runners, our trails for the most part, right. Are covered in snow, right. making, them, making them sort of much more difficult to, to run on without snowshoes in the wintertime. Um, well, I mean, was, was that, is that still your experience that, that running Definitely, yeah. helps, to, helps to add quality to, to the winter? Definitely. Because I've never joined a gym. I thought about it, but it would be something I would never use. I'd rather be outside. So my, I either prefer no, not, you know, not enough snow to make the roads messy or plenty of snow so I can run on the trails. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of years ago we had, a, it was a so, so winter, but I think we had a few ice storms. And the trails, it was like a layer of ice all throughout. And it was like, it was thick enough and strong enough. And I guess I was lighter than that. I could wear my micro spikes. And it was like running on top of nice, smooth, whatever. There no roots, no rocks. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah, there's nothing better than a, uh, a perfectly packed down single track trail in the wintertime, right? It ends up being almost like a white sidewalk, a white soft sidewalk in the, you know, in the woods. Um, not, there's nothing, nothing better than that. I also think too, that um, e- even, even when the snow conditions are such that you really can't run in the snowshoes, just being out on snowshoes in the wintertime, even if you're just trudging through the woods or trudging uh, on the trails is a great, is a great workout. And it's a great winter workout and it's a great way to get outside and spend time outside in the wintertime. And it's body and mind. It's just, it's just so peaceful and serene. It's like, you know, you're in there with just nature and it's, it's, yeah, it's just as good for the mind as it is for the body. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, Richie, let's talk a little bit about your, your early running influences. Um, I mean, we, you know, we, we just spent a little time talking about, um, you know, snowshoe running. And this was, this was 2009, 2008, 2009 through the, you know, the early 2000 teens, but you've been a runner for much longer than that. Um, talk a little bit about, um, how you got started in running. Yeah. Um, I was in middle school, Tingsboro Lakeview elementary school. I was in the sixth grade. And the following year, we were moving up to the high school. Uh, at that time, Tingsboro High was grades 7 through 12. And one of my best friends, Matt Bogaz, he, he's like, oh, you're going to do a sport? I'm like, I don't know. I never thought of it. I, and, of course, I grew up, you know, we, I'm thinking sport, like, well, we can't afford football. That's an expensive kid sport, you know. I can't do any of that stuff. And I was, and again, growing up with an auto racing family, I'd go to school and everybody would be talking about the Super Bowl. And I'd be like, huh, what? <laughs> and I'd be talking about the Daytona 500, but, but, uh, yeah. So he's like, Oh, my brothers run. I'm like, Oh, what do they run? They run cross country. Like, What's cross country. He's like, I don't know. You, you get to run through the woods and stuff. I'm like, Oh, running through the woods. That sounds like fun. So I signed up for cross country and <laughs> no clue exactly what it was. I just thought running through the woods sounded fun. Uh, 
and it ended up that I did pretty good at it. And, and back in those days, I had just canvas, flat canvas sneakers. And I remember the, the coach, Matt, coach, coach Bruce McMaster, he was, he's a great guy. I learned so much from him and he helped me become who I am today. Uh, and I remember him telling my, telling me, you know, you know, see if you can talk to your parents, you know, you need some running shoes. And I remember my parents are like, sneakers are sneakers. You don't need run special shoes just for running. I mean, that's, I mean, I kind I guess I kind of predate the Nike, the, the waffles and all that stuff, but you know, you look at how things have changed, but it, it just kind of grew from there. Um, I just kept at it. I enjoyed it. Sometimes I, I don't know if I was ever the best runner on the team, but I was always a, a key member of the team. And, and it's funny because through my high school years, I remember coach Mack telling me that there were 13 different kids, you know, guys in my grade that were had done cross country and I was the only one left my senior year out of all of us and you know like of course our classes were like 80 something people they weren't huge but you know but it, it was kind of an honor to, to stick it out like that so what uh, uh, I mean you and I both know that that running is hard uh, I mean it never really gets any easier you just get faster and you 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 know you you you, have, you work you have to work the same the same level um, so running's hard and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's somewhat of an unusual sport for kids to take an affinity to because it's hard work. Um, why do you think you stuck it out? Why do you think you were one of those kids in your class that made it all the way to senior year? What was it about running that connected with you? I think it was the camaraderie. Cause I, I think it's, it, I mean, it still stands true today. You hear a lot of kids and, and it's like I've been going a lot of cross country races lately, tying them, and it's like, what a great sport because it's it's a team sport, but it's it's individual as well. But it's it is a team, and, and even other teams, you see other teammates, you know, hey, nice job out there. It's, it's it's just totally different than, I mean, not that I played many of the other sports, but mostly the camaraderie and 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 it's funny because I think back. I don't remember all of my times. I just remember the coach explaining how, how the scoring in cross country work. It's like, okay, if you're our fourth best guy, you have to be their fourth best, fourth best guy. I'm like, okay. It was never run as fast as you can until you die. I, I never really worried much about time. It was just, I kind of had an idea of who I was supposed to try to beat. And then I try to beat them and get in front of them, try to get the next guy. And mm. it was just, it was a good challenge, I guess. Um, you know, for, for, for many kids, um, you know, after high school, there's a lot of directions that their life can go. And, and, and sometimes running is a part of that. And, but oftentimes running isn't a part of that, but for you, um, you know, once high school was over, that wasn't the end of running for you. You continued to run even after high school. So if, if, if the draw to running was the, in part, the camaraderie, of being on a, uh, on a high school cross country team. Once high school was over that, right. The camaraderie element to running kind of went away. How and why did you stay connected to running after high school? Yeah, I, I, I think I might've taken a little time off after that and, and, you know, got a job and started to work and ended up realizing that I, Oh, I can go to college. So I ended up going to Dean. I went to college for a year or two. I'm trying to, I don't even remember how I went. And at one point I was going to run for them in the cross country team. And then I realized that I can't work and do the school and do that at the same time. So that kind of was left out. And somehow I stumbled across 
one of the guys that was running for Tingsboro cross country at the time, Garrett Ford. He lived on the other side of the lake from me and he had run to school, but I started talking to him and he's like, well, why don't you come run with us? I'm like, well, I'm not a coach or anything. He's like, oh no, come around with you. You can help us out. And I think he kind of got me into it. And, and coach Mac was still coaching at the time. He's like, yeah, you can help out. Sure. So I guess I, I, I guess I can give Garrett Ford a lot of credit for me starting and keeping running again. Um, in fact, he went on, he went on, he ran for Westfield state. He was, he had a good career there. He's been working. He, he interned at Disney while he was in college and he's still working full-time down at Disney. And he reaches out to me around. So in fact, he reached out to me the other day. He's like, Hey, look, who's doing a speech. Do you recognize this guy? Uh, Dave McGillivray was doing a speech down in, in Disney. So I'm like, Oh yeah. 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 yeah very <laughs> cool. Was, so was that, um, was, was that the connection uh, to uh, to your volunteer coaching at Tingsboro uh, yeah. High School in both cross country and track and field? Yeah, uh, eventually track. I ended up being a paid coach, but for cross country, I just it was just part of my life. And and of course, running with with just seeing people, probably more the girls than the guys. The guys too, but the girls, you know, telling you know, thanking us for helping them do something they never thought they could do. And, and, you know, I, I, you had, you had belief in me. I didn't believe in myself, but you believed in me. It, it just hit a nerve that, you know what, you can do things. It, it, it teaches a lot, you know, how to set goals, how to accomplish things. And, and it's the one sport that I'm going to quote, quote, coach, coach McMaster again. If you're bad at it, if you have trouble hitting a curveball, you can practice all you want. You're probably never going to be able to hit a curveball. If you're not good at free throws, you might never be good at free throws. I mean, look at Shaq. But running, the more you do it, the better you're going to get. And, and he was right. And, and then it just it became this thing that if I missed too many days of running, I'd feel irritable and cranky. So now it's like it, it's just something it's part of me. I kind of have to do it. It's, it's, it's my release. I don't, I don't take my phone with me when I run. It's, it's my quiet time. I'll listen to a podcast, which I don't mind doing stuff like that. Podcast and music, but I don't want phone calls and interruptions. Yeah. I, I can appreciate that. Um, Richie, what, what was your experience like? Um, how different was the perspective from the other side of things, so to speak? I mean, you were a, you were a, a cross country athlete in high school, you would eventually uh, go on to be a volunteer and then a, and then a paid coach after high school. Um, how was the perspective different uh, being on the other side? In other words, being on the coaching side of things, um, what, 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 what were some of the things that, what were some of the experiences that you had from, from, from being on the other side? It was, I mean, my experience helped a lot, but I think, the runners and the people that were on the team when I grew up, they helped me become who I was as a coach. You know, obviously coach Mac was a huge one, but we, I mean, I was, I was a little pain in the ass in the seventh and eighth grade. I'm sure I was a little annoying, whatever. Some of the older kids, some of the seniors like, get out of here, get out of here. You know, leave me alone, leave me alone. But we had this one guy, Frankie Porter. He was a great runner and he was a great person and, and he always treated me like a person he never treated me down as being a little kid or anything he treated me as a person and that kind of stuck with me and that's how i treated all the runners like i said we had grade 7 through 12 and you know a bunch of seventh grade girls could be really loud and annoying but they're people and you know and, and again i saw a whole different perspective and and, and it's interesting because at that time there wasn't really social media in schools, which must make it more difficult now, but you had people that normally might not connect 
connect because they were on the team together. And, and, and that was one of the best things about cross country and track and field a little bit, but more cross country than track and field. Cause you know, with track and field with all the different events, they still have their different clicks. We are cross country. It was just that group. And do you feel like the coaches that you had as an athlete uh, influenced who you became as a coach? Definitely. Definitely. Um, I know I should expand on that, but my brain's kind of dead on me, right? Yeah, because we had various types of coaches, but they were all, it was all the same. It was all, they were there just to support us. We weren't, I mean, some some coaches maybe push the kids too hard or the runners too hard. Our coaches were always like, you know, we, we're going to take pride that we're not going to burn you out. We're going to try to help you do the best that you can do or the best you want to do, but we hope if you decide to run after school, whether it's college or whatever, that you'll still get better. We're not going to burn you out. And, and, you know, that kind of stuck with me. In, in your experience as a, as a coach coaching that level of the sport, what, what, what was more rewarding seeing a team win a meet or seeing maybe the fifth or sixth kid, um, really lay it all out there and, 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 you know, give absolutely everything they had, even if they weren't going to be standing on top of the podium or actually even contributing to a team for you, Richie, what was the definition of of success as a coach? I mean, it was always make it fun and the wins will come and, and seeing, seeing somebody accomplish something they didn't think they could. Um, we used to do, in fact, I should bring it back. We used to do goal cards. We'd, I'd hand out index cards. Every, give everybody two index cards. Write down your goals on both cards. Give me one if you want. You don't have to. And keep one for yourself. And I said, my goal is to help you accomplish your goals. I'm not going to show anybody else, but that's my goal. And your goal is to put your goal card where you're going to see it every day and read it every day. And it, I mean, some of the goals were run faster. Some of them were to make friends. Some of them were to lose weight. It was all different stuff. And it was nice that it, it was nice to help people accomplish their goals. I mean, if you could, we, I remember one girl, I'm not going to, I, I know we like to mention names, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, but she tried sprinting. She wasn't that great at it. She tried jumping. She wasn't that great at it. She ended up with me on the distance team. And I remember like, you know what? she's got talent. And I remember one of the other coaches like, yeah, he did kind of didn't really totally brush her off, but I don't think he had the, I don't think he saw what I saw. And by her junior senior year, she was one of the top runners because she just kept at it. And that was, that was one of the best things for me. It was just something like that was, it was, that was, that's what it was about. Hmm. Now you would, um, you're still a coach. Even to this day, you're a, you're a, you're a coach with the gate city striders. You're, uh, you're, um, the, the, your new one of your New Hampshire based uh, running clubs, the Gate City Striders. Um, what 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 is your role currently w- with the Gate City Striders uh, as a coach, Richie? Yeah, I'm the head coach, and it's is totally different than high school. And every year, I have to remind myself that I I don't like to be repetitive, so I forget that some of these people never ran before that some of these people didn't run in high school, so they don't know all the basics. And I, I have to remember, you know, I, I need to go back and make sure I'm, even if it is repetitive, go over some of those basics for these people. And I, I've been forgetting that the last few years and, and COVID didn't help, but 
but yeah, the, the realization that some of these people never ran in high school and probably never ran until, you know, maybe a few years before or if that, and that I, I really need to go back to the basics. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's a really good point, right? Um, <clears throat> let's talk about that for, for just, for just a moment. Um, in your experience, um, for someone who is brand new to the sport of running, um, but's interest, but it, but it has an interest in, in, in getting involved. Richie, what's the best way for someone to get started in the sport of running in your opinion? Yeah. Um, I mean, if they can find a club, great, but if they're on their own, the, the most, most important thing, the biggest mistake most people make is they think you have to run fast. You don't because a lot of people that start running, maybe they did field hockey in high school or soccer or, or baseball or whatever. Well, their sports, you're running really fast from point A to point B. Where distance running, longer running, if you run that fast, you're not going to make it. So it, slow down, take walk breaks. We like the whole, you know, 30 seconds run, jogging or running. There, some people don't like the word jogging, but I jog sometimes. I don't mind it. <laughs> you know, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, you can call it, and and just build up slowly and because most people make the mistake of trying to do too much too fast, they get hurt and they, oh, I can't run. I'm not a runner. It, it hurts me. I hate it. So that, that that's probably the most important part of it. Hmm. Um, how important is uh, equipment in running? I mean, there's so many different types of sneakers and stuff nowadays. It's, you know, if, if I, I guess most of the running stores are pretty good now, whether it's, you know, Fleet Feet, Runner's Alley, Millennium, they all have, these fit things that, that help you get in the right shoes. Um, you know, that helps, especially if somebody has flat feet or, or arch problems. Um, other than that, I mean, it's, it's whatever's comfortable. I mean, I know cotton shirts aren't in anymore, but sometimes I'll wear one on a cold day. But, um, <clears throat> yeah. And what about, um, what about GPS technology? Uh, uh, you, you know, uh, wearables, uh, uh, devices that, that track your activity. How important are, are things like that uh, for new runners? If I'm a new runner, do I need uh, a sports activity watch to collect my running data? Is that is that necessary or important, you think? I don't think it's important. And a lot of it, as, as they progress, it depends on the person. Um, I, I, like, I like to have people run by feel. Um, this is still the best watch, I think the old Timex. Yep. It's not all fancy, yep. but I also have one of these. Yeah. Um, it's funny. You, my GPS, yeah, you just showed a fancy GPS enabled device. Yep. I, I'm not a slave to it. Some people are slaves to their devices. I, I, I only use it to keep myself honest. So I, if I, if all of a sudden I'm not, you know, I'm running slow, whatever I can look back, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's cause I haven't been running much. I get it. I get to kind of get with it. I don't really track my pace while I'm running. I'll, I'll watch my heart rate a little bit, but, then I ignore it because it looks like it's way too high. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think if people just ran by feel and enjoy enjoy the sights and the nature. I mean, I run with my a little handheld camera, and it, it keeps me from taking myself too serious. I, I like to see that if it's if I go on a run and I don't see something interesting to take a picture of, I don't. I feel like it's not a successful run. It has nothing well, to do with the pace or yeah, the speed. Yeah. You, you, you're, you are a very interesting follow on social media, particularly as it relates to your runs, because you are, uh, you, you do quite often uh, post uh, the scenes from your run, and they're they're not necessarily always these 
you know, epic, beautiful photographs. Sometimes they're just, but, but they're, sometimes they're just photographs of the ordinary things that you see, but it's, but it's always fascinating to get your, to get your perspective. Um, uh, because look, <laughs> let's face it. We don't, you know, as, as, as runners, we don't necessarily get a chance to run in beautiful, amazing postcard quality places all the time. We run, we oftentimes do a lot of our running in just very ordinary places, but that doesn't mean that there aren't interesting things to see, even in the ordinary places that that we visit. Um, Richie, I'm thinking about more questions about 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 you know beginner runners. Um, as a beginner runner, how often should I be running? Should I be running every day? Should I run every other day? What what's what's your opinion if if I'm a brand new runner? And again, I'm I'm working on this run for 30 seconds, walk for 30 seconds, like I'm slowly building up my running time and shortening my walking time. But how, how frequently should I be running? Um, I'm a firm believer in rest. Um, one or two days a week rest, I, I say, is important. If you need more, it's fine to, to, to take more. Um, if you feel okay to do back-to-back -back days, great, go for it. But, you know, just learn to listen to your body and, and learn – it might take time, but learn the difference between good pain and bad pain, or, or, or I guess I should say good soreness and bad pain um, that might come with experience uh, unless they've done other sports and they can kind of relate. Um, you know, over uh, even now, I'm, I'm, I'm finally doing more cross training myself. For years, I said I need to do some cross training, but for some reason, biking hurt my knees. Cause I'm built weird or something. I don't know, but I got myself an elliptigo a year ago and it is so much fun. It's, it's so much fun. I forget it, that it's actually a hell of a workout. So I have to make sure I'm careful and not overdoing right on, on that. But, uh, so yeah, I, I've definitely, definitely embraced cross training now. I know I should do more weights. I should do push-ups and sit-ups and all that. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so, um, as a new runner, of course, I, you know, I, I have, I have, I have friends through my social media network and I, I see that oftentimes uh, these friends, runner friends um, are doing races, right? And um, so as a new runner, I'm interested in that. Um, and from what I gather, you know, the five kilometer, 3.1 mile races seem to be, uh, seem to be the most common shortest races out there obviously there's other types of racing but in terms of like organized road racing you would agree that the 5k is is the is one of the most common short distances in terms of organized road racing agree right yeah. uh, if you look if you look at a race that has a 5 and a 10k you'll have at least twice as many people running the 5k okay very good so so then that's on my radar um as a new runner richie how do i know when i'm ready to to, 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 to show up at a 5k road race. Uh, how long should I be able to run before I, you know, take the leap and sign up for my first 10, my first 5k. How do I know I'm ready as a new runner to, to do my first 5k race? I'd say, I mean, if you can comfortably do your walk jog for, you know, two and a half, three miles and, you, I'd, I'd say you can do a 5k just to get a feel. You know, don't start in the front. Don't start too fast. You're going to learn that you, you learn so much running in the back of the pack that you don't learn in the front. You learn that it's all different types of people running. 
they're all and in fact the people in the back are working a lot harder than the people in the front most of the time so they actually deserve more credit than the people that win the race i think um i think it's it, it, it's a good perspective for people to see that you know even even if you're coming back from an injury kind of like i am it's like it's a whole different perspective it's like you see you you you, you you know that people are working hard in the back, but when you're actually back there with them, you realize they're, they're working harder than the people in the front. And is it okay to walk, um, part of a five, my first 5k road race. If I'm, if I'm a, a newer runner to the sport, but I'm interested in this racing thing, uh, does everybody run? Does anybody walk periods of it? Old school will say you can't walk. I think walking's just fine. As long as you don't walk in the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> as as a timer yourself, uh, you know that there's always a there's always a a, a percentage of of the participants who will just walk a five k. Yeah, and which is walking a five k is fine. It doesn't it doesn't take that long to to walk a five k. Um, but if you're signing up for a marathon and you're planning to just walk it, um, you, you might end up, you might end up being a little bit of a burden on the timing crew that has to stay there for the entire, um, I don't know, seven or eight hours. It's going to take you to, to walk a marathon, yeah. I'm making that up, yeah. right? Like it's, in other words, for a shorter race, if you're signing up as a runner to run it, it's, it's entirely appropriate if you need to walk parts of it. And again, you know, as a timer, there are people that will show up and to a 5K race and just walk it. Many of these 5K races are are charity races, right? So people even that aren't runners want to support the charity, right? By by signing up, getting a bib, and and then walking. I guess my point was, um, as a runner, you say it's okay if I have to walk parts of that. Definitely. 5k that 5k race um all right well let's let's shift to the sort of the other side uh, other side of the spectrum because um you know as a as a coach with the with the gate city striders the gate city striders is a is a running club here in new hampshire and um you know they they the their runners uh encompass the entire gamut uh, of of runners from from new runners to very experienced runners um richie you, what is your experience with with ex- experienced runners uh and particularly as a coach how do you manage that diversity in in running specific experience as a coach let's say you're hosting a a wednesday track workout i don't know i just made that up but but it's actually when i work outside on okay. <laughs> <laughs> i knew that somehow all right so 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 i'm showing up to i'm a gate city strider and i'm showing up to one of your wednesday track workouts uh coach blake is 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 leading um and but i'm an experienced runner right so what what can i what can i expect as an experienced runner from from coach blake how would you approach me that might be different than the way you would approach a new runner? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, if it was, some things were so much easier before COVID. Uh, at that time we had probably 60 people or so show up for track workouts. So we had four different groups on the track, A, B, C, and D. And it was kind of by pace group A, anybody, six minute pace or faster they kind of grouped up and you know seven minutes to eight minutes you know eight plus and then ten plus and and it it was great because everybody was in their own group they were competing with each other or helping each other with the workouts 
and then you know the, the the more experienced runners didn't have as many questions or they kind of already knew what they were doing and again we had four four different coaches and people could ask any of us whatever they wanted uh post covid now we're, we're just kind of down to two coaches plus a marathon coach um the numbers have dwindled and it, it was just you know how are we going to time everybody so i and I, I you know i read a lot and and i i started changing all the workouts to time instead of distance instead of okay we're going to run 800s today well for the fast guy that might only take two two and a half minutes for the not as fast people that's going to take four five six minutes so they're working a lot harder they're actually burning themselves out doing this track workout so i changed everything i based it on an eight minute mile just because it was easy to do the math so okay we're going to run for two minutes rest for a minute two minutes is the same for everybody some people might go further but everybody's getting the same exact quality workout and, and i think a lot of the the newer runners really like that you know some of the diehards they still want to know where their distance is it's like you know you guys you can start wherever you want you can do that if you want and you don't you know in in you know you can alter it but i think it made it more even for everybody um still wishing we could our numbers would grow back but you know it's, it's a little bit of a drought right now for for the club but uh but yeah i, I think that made a big difference everybody gets the same kind of a workout hmm. so um these wednesday track workouts um up to what distance would you say that that track workouts are applicable to uh to improving performance in other words um, I would imagine that, you know, if I'm, if I'm racing 5k road races, track workouts are great. If I'm racing 10k, maybe even half marathon, or maybe even up to the marathon distance, uh, track workouts would be appropriate. Richie, do you think that there's a cutoff in terms of the race distance beyond a certain distance work track workouts may not be as applicable? Um, I actually, I think it'll help everybody. You might not need it in an ultra, but it's good to work the different muscle groups, the different muscles. So I, I think it helps everybody. And, and, and one of the keys is we try to keep, try to keep the fast stuff around two miles, no more than two miles, you know, for the workout. Cause you don't want, you know, you don't want it to be like, or you don't want to be burning people out during the track workout. So I know for you, I mean, you've, you <laughs> you've raced everything from, you know, the shorter distances, 5k all the way up to ultra marathons. Um, um, when, when you were, when you were training for, for, for marathons and ultra marathons, were you doing track workouts yourself? Yep. I, I, you know, I like having a mix and that's something else I would tell new people. It's good to mix it up. Don't do the same exact thing every day, whether it's change the route or something, although I do one of the same routes myself now, but, you know, do, do a hilly route, do a flat route, do a, you know, scenic route, just ch change things up. A natural progression for many runners, uh, road runners is the, the progression and the evolution into trail running. So, and I, I, I know you've done a fair amount of, of trail running yourself. Um, Richie, if, if you had a, if you had an experienced road runner, approach you with with interest in getting into trail running knowing that you yourself are, are a trail runner what would your advice be to that experienced road runner that's inquiring about trail running yeah uh realize that 
you prefer, you're not going to be able to run as fast on the trails, so don't push it. And especially if you're not used to it, um, you know, maybe start off with some easier trails. I know mine falls park in Nashville. Those trails are pretty well, pretty flat. And even, um, if, you know, if I take anybody to Benson park, some of the outer, some of the, some of the trails are kind of nice and groomed, but some of the outer trails are really awesome single track with a lot of roots and rocks and turns. And I love it. And I think it's really good for runners because it strengthens things that are getting ignored, just running on the roads, but new runners, you know, they have to take a little bit of caution when they're starting. Is, um, do you think trail running is inherently dangerous because of the rocks and roots? No, no. Do you think that the, that the softer, the surface, uh, in other words, running on trails is a trails are a much softer surface than asphalt or cement. Do you think that the softer surface might, might offset any particular, any potential risk of, of trips and falls that might be associated with, with trail running? It's a good mix. It's um, yeah, I think you definitely, I think your feet probably take less pounding and, and maybe your joints, but then you do get a lot of the lateral movement. And, and until you get used to that, you might get a little bit of soreness from that. It's, it's kind of like running on beach. And if you go run on the beach, it's like, Oh, it's nice and soft, but wow, you feel it. Cause you know, it's not as easy. Yeah. Um, what, what was the, what was the best bit of advice you ever received, uh, personally about about running huh um i think you know i, I don't even i can't remember it was advice that somebody gave me or just something that i thought of is just don't take yourself too seriously hmm. do you think that's an issue with a lot of with a lot of runners i think people put a lot of pressure on themselves and, and it's you know, I, I, I remember telling a few people and, and I think, um, oh, my mind's going to go blank when I try to think of his name, Randy Pierce. He's, he's a, a blind runner here in New Hampshire. Super great guy. And I remember I told somebody, wrote somebody a quote because they didn't think they did that great in a race. And he was like, is that one of yours? I'm like, I can't remember hearing it from anybody else. And it's like, the gist of it is in any race, there's maybe only a handful of people that can win. It's everybody else that makes up the race. It's everybody else that is more, more important, I would say, because you can't have a race with only five people. Everybody else is just as important, if not more important than those few people. You know, everybody has their own goals, their own pace, their own thing, and they're all equally important. So don't worry if you don't think you ran fast. You ran fast than somebody that didn't even try it. Did you have to learn that lesson through your own experience? I mean, I've never been the fastest i think i probably learned it more whenever i had an injury and like i say whenever i was coming back from an injury and ended up running in the back and, and people that i kind of just took took for granted oh yeah i beat that guy easy and all of a sudden they were kicking my ass and it's like you know what they earned that and you know what it was good for both of us it's good for them <laughs> and it's good for me and it, it, you know it's funny talking about the track workouts this year's track workouts when i could finally start running again i was being lapped by people that normally wouldn't have but again i think it was great for them to see that hey he's starting over but he's still doing it and it was good for me to see that you know what it's all part of the it's all part of the sport yeah and starting over is a is a common is a common theme for for many runners 
um, who e either either as a circumstance of overtraining uh, result in needing to take time off or just by uh, you know just by bad luck uh, suffer illness or, or injury that requires um, significant time away from running. You recently had an experience like that in which you had to take some time off from running. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I kind of joke about it in a way because in high school, I, two weeks I could be back in shape. If I was slacking and didn't run in the summer, I'd show up the first day of practice and you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm in running shape, racing shape. Now, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's going to take me a lot more than two weeks. Uh, yeah, it started uh, last, a year ago, August, I got done a run in the summer. It was hot out and relieving myself. I'm like, wait a minute, that, that, that that's, that's red color in my pee. That's not normal. I thought maybe I had an infection or something, so I took a few days off from running, and it happened a few more times. I'm like, all right, so I doing the wrong thing because I'm a guy and I didn't have insurance. I just stopped running for a while. Um, every once in a while I'd have some kind of a weird pain in my back. So Dr. Google told me it was, might've been a kidney stone or I could be dying of cancer. So eventually I, I finally got insurance February of this past year and had another attack and finally just said, okay, I got to get this looked at. And I had a 12 millimeter kidney stone. So it didn't hurt when I ran, but I didn't like peeing blood. So I just wasn't running. <laughs> Uh, but now that, that once, once I got rid of that and got rid of the after effects, I was able to start running again. And of course that I kept having calf issues for some weird reason, but it's all seems to be good now. So knock mm. on wood. What, and it, um, it's so much fun to run. I, I, I love it. it. It took me a while, took a, took a while before I could kind of get back in the swing of it. But I, I mean, even today I get a nice run in today. It's the best weather to run in. I felt like kind of felt like I was flying, even though my watch told me I wasn't, but it was so much fun. What, um, what was the hardest part about not running during that period of time? I was probably more cranky and irritable <laughs> than I should have been. You know, I could, I could do the elliptigo still and that, that didn't bother me much, but, um, uh, um, uh, that definitely helped, but yeah, I missed, I just miss the out. I miss being outside and just enjoying the out. You know, whether even if it's hot or cold or whatever, I just miss being outside as much as I should have been. When during that period of time, when you were driving around, did you notice other runners more during that period of time that you couldn't run? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Didn't didn't it seem like everybody in the world was a runner during the yeah. time in which you couldn't run? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It was, yeah, it was like, oh, it cost me. Oh, why don't you come run? I'm like, yeah, I'm taking some time off right now. I didn't, I didn't really share my my story with many people because, well, at that time I wasn't sure what it was, and I didn't want. It one of those things. People, well, why don't you go to a doctor? Well, because I don't like doctors. I know it's the wrong answer. I know. <laughs> um, what is what has it been like um, returning back from that 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 layoff? Um, how have you how have you approached this this return to running i mean now it's it's several months now this was this was may of this past year um right it was may of this past year that you started back yeah may and it was very sporadic because of these random calf issues that just kept popping up so then i'd take another week off and then start again and then another week off but it seemed finally over the hump but i, I think other people probably know more than me because i think 
you know, my smile was back. I didn't, mm. you don't realize it's gone until it's back. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Good point. I just um, kind of forget how good it makes me feel to be out there moving. And I mean, nowadays, uh, now that you're back to running, how many days a week are you running? I'm trying to do at least five again, um, but I'm all, I'm trying to mix it up with the elliptical, especially now that the weather is nice. I, I, I hate missing out on good, good weather days for that. Cause I know, I can run in the snow. I'm not going to try to ride that thing in the snow. And once it gets cold out again, I can, I don't, I love I single digits. I don't care. I'll go out and run, but the wind chill on that thing would be too much. Mm, yeah. Um, and I'm uh, to up to at least five days a week again. Yeah. And do you, when, do, when you, when you go out for a run now, do you, do you, do you run with a target time in mind or a target distance in mind? How do you, how do you determine how much running you'll do on any given run? Yeah, um, sometimes I do plan it ahead, but I mean, if 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 I know I'm sore and I need an easy day, I have a nice semi-easy three-mile loop. Like today, I'm like, well, I'm going to do one of my routes that ends up going through Benson Park, and whether I take a left at the trail or take the right-hand trail, I'll decide that when I get there. Got it. Um, well, you, <laughs> you, 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 in a very humble way, downplayed your prowess as a runner. Um, but, but, but you've, you've accomplished some pretty cool things some pretty amazing things that, that a lot of runners will never experience. And that specifically includes winning outright two races. You, you, after high school, you told me that, that outright you won two races. I'm curious do you remember those those experiences i do and, and you know one of them I, I there's no record of it anywhere it was it was a race in dunstable mass and i it wasn't a huge race and i don't even know what it was about but i remember i i knew the uh the dare officer at the time joey Pivarado. he was the lead vehicle and so we started out and it's weird because i felt when we started my heart rate felt wicked high for some reason but but i still felt okay but I just kind of just kept going and going with the flow. And there was one guy that was way out in the lead and probably about two and a half miles into the race, this guy just turned into a parking lot of a store. I'm like, <laughs> what, what was that all about? And I'm like, I don't know if I can swear. But I'm like, shit, I'm in the lead. <laughs> so I'm running after the, the, the lead vehicle, which never really happened before. And, you know, working my butt off because I didn't want to lose that lead. And it finished kind of up a hill and around the center of town. And, and I ended up winning the race outright. It was, <laughs> it was just, I couldn't believe it. It was like, wow, that was probably early thousands, maybe. Probably late nineties, early thousands. <laughs> <laughs> what was the other race? Do you remember? Yeah, the other one, there was a series in Westford that I did. I did it for so many years. In fact, a, a mutual friend of ours, actually, I don't know. I don't know if you know Lee Panis. Lee Panis has run every single one of them. I do um, know that name. In fact, Amber Ferreira used to run those races. I actually used to beat Amber. <laughs> uh, but it was there was a year that I hadn't been able to run many of them and I showed up at one of them and it was the year they had the course in reverse, which doesn't really make much difference, but Scotty Graham was there. Scotty Graham ran a lot of those. I'm trying to remember who else was there, but it was a decent crew. It was like a 3.5 or 3.6 mile loop. And we started it out and I'm talking to people and we're just enjoying it. We're going up a dirt road. 
I see Scotty and I'm talking to Scotty and he's like, Oh, you look like you, you look like you're feeling good. I'm like, Oh, I feel good right now. He's like, Oh, go far. I'm like, Oh, you'll probably pass me later, but I'm going to, I'm going to run up ahead. I feel really good. And I keep running. And there's two high school kids in front of me. Like, Oh yeah, they got it. But I'm just running along. And next thing I know they they slow down a little bit. So I'm kind of running with them. And then all of a sudden they tucked in behind me. I'm like, Oh, I know these guys. They, they're, they're actively in the sport. And this was probably 2009, maybe nine or 10. And, uh, and I remember from high school, I was all, you, you've run with me. I can talk while I run. I've always been able to, I, I just thought of it as, you know, coach Magda. So all your ears just moving through your voice box instead of just all the way out. And I never knew till I graduated. And he told me, he's like, you know, you probably beat a lot of people you shouldn't have because you were talking to them. And they probably thought they were either bored, sick of listening to you, or they thought you had a lot left. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, these two kids are going to try to kick me at the end. So I started talking to him like, hey, don't let me slow you guys down. If you feel good, just go by me. You know, you guys are in great shape and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I you know learned from a young age, you never look back. So I just, all of a sudden, I heard a set of footsteps kind of get more faint. I'm like, okay, there's one going. <laughs> then we, come, we probably have less than a mile to go. And I'm like, oh, I got to try to pick it up a little bit. So I'm still talking. And then I, it just, and again, the footsteps got fainter and fainter and fainter. And probably the last half mile, I just ran, ran. And like my life depended on it and ended up crossing the line first. Well, as I said, that's um, it, it's a it's a pretty amazing accomplishment. <clears throat> Most runners, <clears throat> uh, I would suggest, will never win a race, uh, let alone win two races. So uh, that that is a that's a pretty amazing accomplishment. And I'm really glad that you remember those two experiences because those are really pretty special. You also had uh, a, another interesting uh, running and racing related experience I want to talk about. <clears throat> and that's uh, that's the five marathons that you that you ran. Um, and uh, now that's that in and of itself is not terribly unusual, although it's it, 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 it's no small accomplishment. But what I do think is unusual is the fact that you PR'd each of those five marathons. So there's got to be a story there, Richie. Uh, tell us the story of the five marathons and the five PRs. What were those marathons? Uh, how far apart were they? And uh, how in the world did you manage to PR each of those five marathons? Yeah. Um, well, the first one, it was, I got a number for Boston through my running club through Gate City back in 2009. I Actually, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was 2009. And, you know, I had trained pretty well, I thought. And I had, you know, I, I, I can't remember what my goal was. I, I was hoping to, I think I was probably hoping to break four hours because I'm not a, I'm not a world-class runner by all means. And, I was doing, I was doing the uh, Galloway, the walk, walk break method. And it was going pretty well. And I, I'm coming down towards Boylston and I hear somebody saying, Bill Rogers is up ahead of you. I'm like, huh? Bill Rogers? What? I ended up running and catching up to Bill Rogers. I ran kind of next to Bill Rogers in my finish line photo. Bill Rogers is right behind me waving to the crowd. So I had to buy that. And, 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 you know, in fact, a couple of years ago, uh, one of my fellow coaches and friend of mine, Dave Salvis, he, his kids that he coached for got him a, a some kind of an, a gift that end, ended up, he had a, a run with Bill Rogers and he could bring somebody. 
And I have no, not upset at all that I was his second choice because his first choice couldn't make it. But I, <laughs> I get to go with Dave Salvis to run with Bill Rogers. We ran it, uh, the Concord, um, Concord Mass there in the battlefield area. It was beautiful. And I had a copy of the picture of that I had him sign for me. And he's like, oh, can you send me one of those? I'm like, I already made you one. Here you go. He was telling me that guy in the picture next to me, that was my doctor and blah, blah, blah. Because he's oh, a cool. super interesting guy. Very cool. So so that was my first boss. And I ended up, I finished just barely under four hours. Uh, Bill was just over, but he started ahead of me in the heat. But um, <laughs> And then I didn't do another one until... Yeah, because I think I was 40 that year. I think my second one was Marine Corps Marathon. I had a, a bunch of people from um, Gate City were going to do the Marine Corps Marathon. I in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. I think it was 2015. And I had learned a lot from the first one. And you know, typically, most people, they run the second one faster. And you know, I can't remember my time, but I did. I started out slower than I wanted because my quads were tight, but it actually worked to my advantage about five miles in. I felt like a million dollars and just, I, I was literally yelling at myself, don't be stupid. Keep on, you know, slow down. I didn't hit my goal pace until I, until I was halfway through, you know, till 13.1. And once I hit that, I'm like, okay, just a little bit, pick it up, pick it up little by little. And I ended up negative splitting and it, it felt so good to run a race that way. It felt so good being running by people at the end that were dying. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I learned something good there. Um, and I did Marine Corps the following year, and I think I did something similar. And and was that I did Marine Corps twice, and, and I did another Boston somewhere in there. I did Boston in 2016, I think. And again, I was lucky enough to to PR in that. I think it was 3:41 and change. And I was, you know, I, I I would have loved to be under 3:40. That was one of my goals. So I think the following year I did. Um, the New Jersey marathon, which was the week after Boston. Wow. And I, I've always been really bad at humidity and it was super humid out. And again, I started conservative. I had a whole plan in place. I get up to, I felt pretty good all the way through, but beyond halfway. And I, I had a bottle of Coke that I smashed in a tree when I was on my way to the race that was still there at, you know, around 19 miles. I grabbed that. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be awesome. And as I'm running, I'm looking at the clocks. They, had, they actually had clocks every mile. And I'm like, the time is weird. It doesn't seem right. What's going on? I feel like I was passing people, so I felt like I picked it up. But yet the clock told me I wasn't. But I was still passing people. It didn't dawn on me that it was just so humid. It was kicking everybody's ass. And then the clocks were getting blurrier and blurrier and fuzzier and fuzzier. I'm like, I don't know if this is good, but somehow I PR'd in that by like 18 seconds or something. <laughs> and I never felt so bad after a race in my life. I was that guy after the finish line, holding onto the railing with people coming up and asking me if I was okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. <laughs> it took me a long time to recover for that one. It was just, yeah. And now I'm like, you know, I was hoping to do another marathon and be under 340, but now I'm like, you know, Marathons kind of suck. They're too fast. Give me something longer and slower that nobody even has a clue about. Nobody knows what a 50K is or a 50 mile or whatever. I've never done a 50 mile, but nobody knows what a 50K is. <laughs> so so you, that's how your running has evolved to longer, slower distances. Um, do you, I mean, again, you're, you're sort of working yourself back, uh, right, in, into, into running shape. 
Um, at the time that we're taping this show, it's the end of October of 2023. Um, not a whole lot of, of racing happening the rest of 2023. As you're, as you look forward to 2024, um, do you have any, any events, uh, any races on your own personal race calendar that you're targeting? Yeah, I have nothing planned. It's funny because right now I'm like, I, I really have no desire to race, but I would like to help my running club out if, if, if I can, if I'm not working on a weekend, I'd, I'd, I would like to help my running club out somehow where even, you know, they have new rules with the New Hampshire Grand Prix that everybody scores points. So even if I'm as slow as I am now, I can score at least a point. So I, I would hopefully, hopefully I'll get to run some of those for the club. Um, you know, I would like to do some more mountain races again and as much as they hurt, but I know they make, it makes you better. <laughs> that in fact, one of my regrets, one, 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 well, not a regret. One thing I, I feel bad about this past year is just the way the weekends worked. I wasn't able to help out at any of the asymptotic races here. And that's one of my goals every year. I want to at least, at least try to volunteer for something. Well, a, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, even if you are not physically in person uh, at an asymptotic racing event, helping us, to organize and to execute the race, you are always available to me to field my seemingly endless questions I have about run score, the the uh, the scoring software, um, and and sometimes the the time machine, the the physical hardware. So uh, so even if you're not there in person, Richie, uh, I know that uh, you're always at the other end of my cell phone when I have when when inevitably I have questions about about timing and scoring, which is a good segue into, uh, into the last part of the, of our conversation. And that is, um, and that is about timing and, uh, about what you're, about what you're currently doing now. Um, you know, you, you've, you've had a, you've had a, a, I'm trying to think of the, the, the best way to put this. You've had a, a quite a meandering, uh, job history, work-related history. I don't yeah. think you would. You, you you don't take that as a as a as an insult. I mean, it's you. You've had the good fortune to do a lot of different things, and I and and I actually think there's some benefit in that. I mean, and I've enjoyed every single one of them. In yeah, fact, I, mean, I, I still work part time at the auction, the auto auction. Right. I mean, but but like everything from driving a special ed bus to being a custodian to working uh working at a uh at a at a at an auto uh an auto not a, a, a not an auto salvage but an auto auction okay. dealer um to uh, i mean just the number of different jobs you've had is really it, it's 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 quite an interesting list and probably a podcast in and of itself um but but here you are now um and um timing is what you do full time now right yeah, uh, imagine making money doing something you love to do. Actually, you can imagine it now. I can't imagine that for sure. Um, so, um, yeah, talk a little bit about uh, about what that looks like now for you. Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, the, the fact that your you know your work related schedule is so busy that we haven't had the opportunity to see much of you at acidotic racing events the last year or two. Um, how many weekends out of the year are you actually working timing events? And, I, and again, I think, I think that's important for the listener to understand that, um, that you work 
uh, on days typically that, that other people have off. Like you work on the weekends because it's the weekends. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not working your job outside of that, but like dedicated longer periods of time on the weekend, right? Being at races. Um, how many weekends a year, Richie, are you timing? Um, uh, how many of them? I suspect you probably have crews that time for you. How many events are you actually in person at? Um, tell us a little bit about what that workflow looks like for you. Yeah, um, I probably should keep better track at certain things. I, I mean, I know we've had over 100 events this year so far. Um, actually, a few of them are still still yet to happen. Uh, I get, I have, including myself, I got four regular guys that, that go out and time the races, and they're they're all excellent. Um, we've we get races from people that are like, oh, I work with with so and so, or I work with so and so, and they were just so great to work with. I'm going to recommend you to you know, another race or whatever. Uh, I'm trying. Dave, one one of some of the advice Dave Kamir gave me back it was tried tried to try not to time every weekend try to you know try to have some time for yourself and it's it's tough because i actually i love timing the races the other stuff is kind of sometimes annoying but i love timing the races but i did try to back off a little bit this year and and give races that i really enjoy timing to some of the other guys so i could go watch you know my you know my cousin do some auto racing and stuff and you know maybe do some yard work for my mom and stuff like that but um it's the the other stuff that's more challenging the the accounting the invoicing the you know answering emails and i'm the kind of guy if i see an email at 10 o'clock at night well i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing but i'll answer it at 10 o'clock at night I, I i just can't wait i can't put it off till tomorrow so i try to do a lot of it. but again most race directors have full-time jobs so they're not emailing during the day they're emailing when they get off work and it's at night or on the weekends on sundays they're calling on Sunday. so that did take some getting used to, um, but it's just, just part of the gig. Hmm. But I, I do like the timing aspect because I like the aura. It, it's just a positive aura, nice people. Um, and, and that's part of why I started working, you know, kept working part-time at the auction on auction days or on Thursdays is I didn't realize that I missed that people connection because most of the other stuff I'm all by myself all day doing it. And, you know, I love, I love, I love my personal time and my alone time, but I learned that I need, I need, there's social aspect of life is very important too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, well, the, 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 the timing industry here in the Northeast, as many races as there are here in the Northeast. And I think from a, a, a race density standpoint, the Northeast has more races per capita than probably anywhere, any other region of the country. There's a lot Definitely, of racing, yeah. racing going on here in the Northeast. And so it's, it's, it's of no surprise that um, there are also a lot of timing companies here in the Northeast right. as well. Um, and um, so there's quite a bit of competition. Um, Richie, from your perspective, um, you know, having been an employee of the company and now, you know, running the company uh, yourself, what do you think differentiates your company from the other timing companies that are out there? I'm not saying better or worse. I'm just saying 
how do you how do you think that 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 you're different that your time and company is different from the other time and companies out there i mean for me I, I think it all comes down to customer service we just try to give the best customer service we can um i, I kind of get that at the, from the auction as well the auction i work at it's an independent auction so it's not one of the chains and we've had a lot of dealers come through and say oh you guys are very nice and so much more helpful than some of the other places we go and and that's what it comes down to try to be helpful just be yourself i don't believe in you know i don't believe in stealing other timers races i get along with i think all the other timers in the area i've, I've actually helped you know granite state or our bay state but you know new england timing they've had races where they couldn't cover and they asked if i could and, and yeah yeah i just happen to have a crew that day or i can do it myself because i know what it's like to be stuck and i'm sure if i have if i have that need they'll be able to help me out you know, Millennium as well. There, you know, I get along fine with those guys. I, I, I think I get along with all of them. Um, again, we don't actively go after other timers races. Sometimes a client might come to us because they didn't have a good experience customer service wise with one of the other companies, and it's like, you know, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to them. They came to me. So, um, yeah, and and what what's what's the what do you think is the biggest misconception? that um race directors have in in terms of what it takes to organize a race which would include the timing i'm thinking i'm not thinking of the i'm not thinking of the professional race directors out there i'm thinking about the 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 local school district that wants to do a fundraiser. And yeah. so, because as we talked about the 5k road race seems to be a very common distance of race that's held. And it seems to be a fairly common way that people attempt to raise money for fill in the blank. Um, what, 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 in your experience, what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions that event committees have when they begin to explore putting on a race, including hiring a timing company. Yeah. They, they think that it's, they see other races that are successful and they think it's easy. Oh, look, they have 500 people at their race. We're going to put on a race to raise money. They just, they totally underestimate the amount of work it takes to build a race up to that. You know, um, there's a lot of marketing that goes into it. If you're good at it, you're good at it. If you're not, you're not. Um, you know, Millennium's great at that, but you know, they're putting on events. I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm as a timing company, I'm not really promoting other, I, I should correct. I'm trying to promote other people's races, but there's only so much I can do. It's up to them, whether it's their face, Facebook is huge, but that's where it hurt without cool running. There's no one place. So if they don't, if, if they don't already have roots in the ground, they have to realize, you know, you might go through a year or two that, is, that you're only going to get 30, 40 runners. But word will, word will spread. If you put on a good event, in fact, there's one race I'm thinking of in particular. It was we, it was the second one was this year, the Tri-City Cars. Um, great people to work with. They have a great idea. It's for veterans. And they I think they might have doubled their runner number this year, but there's still around 50, 50-ish runners. But, but if they keep at it, I think they can really grow it. So I, I think the biggest thing is thinking it's going to be a complete success the first year and then giving it up before it becomes a success. Yeah. And, and as we talked about, the 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 race calendar is very busy. And so yeah. if you're if you're hosting a 5K road race, 
in the summertime, it's very likely that within an hour drive distance from your location, there may be a half dozen other 5K road races being held on the same day. So right. uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of competition even even within the, the uh, it, it, within the race organization uh, 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 industry as well. Um, Richie, in terms of hiring a professional timing company, you know, again, I'm sure you get inquiries all the time from these race organization committees that are, that are formed to raise money for a charity and they get the idea to, to hold a, you know, they want to host a race to raise money. Um, from a break-even standpoint, again, we're talking about road road races, and the presumption would be that, you know, typically, unless the services are donated, um, you know, most road races have to hire or at least consult with the local municipality, specifically the police department, um, and hire uh, police officers to to marshal or at least to be present at certain intersections. And there's cost associated with that. When it comes to when it comes to hiring a professional timing company, um, is there? Do you think there's a minimum number of participants a race organization has got to figure uh, in order to in order to justify hiring? Because I mean, you're not you're not you can't give your timing services away for free, um, right? I mean, you're you guys are busy and. Um, while I'm sure you you do you do your share of charitable work, you know you you can't send a crew you know to to time a race at no cost. So, um, what what's the break even you think in terms of number of participants for a, a, a local a local 5K to hire a professional timing company? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess it depends on what they want the race to look like. I mean, like I say, we do a few races that have under 50 people and they do chip timing. Um, but again, I think having the chip timing is going to help them build their race. Uh, we're one of the few companies that still does manual timing. I know I know Granite State does. I'm not sure if Bay State. Bay State probably does. Actually, I think Bay State does as well. But, um, you know, I have one timer. He, he will never time another mini race again. He, he just loves the technology and that, that's fine. But I get a few timers that, you know what, it's either no work or a day of work. Um, and, and I think under a hundred people, even, even maybe in 150, 200 people, you can get by with a manual race, but the key is they have to supply some quality volunteers. As, as you know, it takes volunteers to, to do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, so, ju and just for, just for clarification for the listener, who's not familiar with the, with the timing industry, you, you you're, you're mentioning the, the difference between, a manually timed race and a, and a technology or a chipped time race. Can you talk a little bit more about what, what is, what does it mean to manually time a race and what, 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 what what's chip timing? What, what, what do those, what do those two terms mean? Yeah. Uh, manually, uh, we just have what we call a time machine. We hit a button for every finisher. Uh, we can hit some other buttons for every, for some finishers. And then we have somebody writing the finishing order on a clipboard um, that all feeds into a computer and, you know, there are way, you know, this, this checks to make sure who was where and so on and so forth. It takes a little bit longer to get the results than, than a, a chip race. And it does require volunteers. Uh, where a chip race, 
they have the chip on if they have a start and finish line that that's chipped the chip reads when they start reads when they finish and it's pretty much instant into the computer and you really don't need volunteers or anything you just whether the races are still printing which we're trying to wean people off of that because everything's online now and most people have phones the results are right there and they get an email within seconds of themselves finishing they get an email in the finish time it, in, in some ways that's good in some ways that's bad um I can expand on that if you want. Yeah, sure. I, I think the only way, the only reason it's bad for the results coming off so fast, it makes not all races, but it makes a lot of races less social than they used to be. Good point. Where people used to have to hang around and wait for the results. So it was a much more social event. But nowadays people are just like, they're in a hurry to get the results, get the reward if they get one and go on to the next thing. Yeah. And let, yeah. Let, and let me, let me interject there. Cause I, I recently had a, an experience that I'm, I'm sure you can relate to um, that I, I actually had a conversation with somebody about. So we, Acidotic Racing, we hand time or manually time our events. In fact, the technology or the equipment that we use to time our events is thanks to your recommendation. I reached out to you many years ago and said, Richie, I'm, I'm, I need to, I need to time my own events. What, what do I need for equipment? And you gave me the recommendations. In fact, I think it's, it's very similar equipment. Uh, we have a time machine as well. Uh, we use, we use software called run score that, that helps us to, uh, to, to compile results. Um, but, and it takes, and it takes volunteers. Now, <clears throat> you're really good at this manually time stuff. So, and, and, and over the years that you have helped, actually there've been several occasions where you've actually shown up to our races. I'm thinking of snowshoe races uh, and you have helped us time our event with our equipment uh, and have actually been able to print results on paper right there at the venue after the race for us to do an award ceremony. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not nearly as clever as you are when it comes to that sort of thing. So um, at our, at our races, and I'm specifically thinking of our mountain races, um, we manually time, but we don't post results. Uh, in fact, the results won't be finished until I eventually get home from the venue, uh, unpack my truck and then sit down and start to do results manually. The point of that is that, after our after our two mountain races, and I'm thinking specifically our, our last mountain race, the Cranmore Mountain Race, it was just a couple of weeks ago. There were no results to be had. There was no award ceremony. There was nothing formally happening after the race. And yet, nearly everyone stayed. Nice. Nobody left. Um, I mean, eventually they left, but but the but the point is they were only sticking around because of the camaraderie, because of the community. And I wonder if that's part of the difference between trail and mountain running and say road running. Definitely. Definitely. Personally and professionally. Yeah. Uh, road races, runners, road runners are less jerky than the general population for the most part. Trail runners are even less jerky, and I think mountain runners are extremely less jerky. <laughs> it's just 
you know, I like I like the way that you graded that out. Yes, and I and I like the way that you couched you couched it. You didn't say roadrunners were jerky. You just said they they're less jerky than the than the general population. Right. <laughs> and you took it from there. <laughs> it, it, it is a it's a good point. It's a good point, Richie. Um, uh, it, but and again, your 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 point about manually timed races uh, and reasons to stick around and or chip time races and reasons to stick around are, are well taken. Um, I mean, I enjoy timing manual races because to me it brings back to the roots. I mean, yeah, we're not going back to popsicle sticks, but it still brings you back to the roots. And it's like you're right there where you know some people if they're doing chip timing, they're off in a building or a van, not even near the finish line. It's like no, no, I want to be right at the finish line. I don't. I, I want to be part of this. I want to feel the, like I say the aura. It, it's you know. <laughs> the popsicle sticks make me laugh because we talked earlier about the Whitaker Woods snowshoe scramble, Kevin Tilton's old snowshoe race yep. there in North Conway, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but he handed out popsicle sticks at the finish. The popsicle sticks were numbered and you would, you, you would be hand. No, I'm sorry. You, you had to, <laughs> sorry. You were given a popsicle stick before the race. And it, it was, it was your bib number essentially. Cause you didn't have a bib. You had a popsicle stick with a number on it. And that I was the number. Yeah. Yeah. And that was your number. Right. I mean, we're thinking now, right. In modern, in modern racing, uh, road racing or trail racing or mountain racing, you know, you have a bib and that bib is a, there's a number on that bib. And to your point, the electronically chipped timed uh, uh, races have a, a chip and like an RFID or some other kind of technology embedded right. in the bib itself. But Kevin had no bibs. He had a, you were given a popsicle stick. Now that, now the most difficult thing about that, I don't know if you remember this, this is a snowshoe race. You had to make sure you held on to your popsicle stick because if you somehow <laughs> dropped your popsicle stick or lost your popsicle stick, I I, I guess he probably would have figured it out. But it, it really would have it really kind of would have put a monkey wrench in things. Um, and I'll never forget um, trying to figure out like because you know you're you're racing snowshoes, you got tights on, and I I had a singlet and a long sleeve shirt. I didn't have any pockets. So <laughs> what, what am I going to do with this popsicle stick? Now I didn't want to put it in my tights. Right. You know what happens when you put a popsicle <laughs> stick in your tights? It never stays where you want it to stay. Yeah. Right? And I remember you're going to have to give it to the to the person at the finish. So I didn't want to have to drop trow at the at the at the finish line in order to retrieve my popsicle stick. So <laughs> I actually tucked it in my hat. But the entire time I the entire time I was racing, I kept reaching back with my hand to touch the back of my hat my winter hat to make sure that my popsicle stick hadn't fallen out. Anyway, you mentioned popsicle sticks. No, we're not going back to the old days with, with popsicle <laughs> sticks. Um, Richie, the, 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 the chip timing technology um, has, has changed quite a bit uh, during the time in which you've been involved with this. Uh, I mean, I can remember in the very early days of, of chip timing um the uh, the timing mechanism was often worn was often like a tag, uh, a small plastic tag. Right, you'd like, have to lace it into your sneaker. You have to lace it almost like a little bit bigger than a the size of a postage stamp, right? A little bit bigger than the size of a postage stamp. Oh, but there was a little bit of substance to it, right? It was kind of bulky, sort yeah. of. And you're right; you either had to lace it into your shoes or you wore it on a, um, on like a Velcro strap that you would strap around your ankle or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
right? That, that, that was some of the original technology. Um, eventually that improved to be, um, the technology was embedded almost like in a strip uh, that would be ad adhered to the back of a bib, right? And, and, right. and um, um, again, initially there, there was a little bit of substance to it, but eventually that technology got sleeker and, and slimmer. Um, what does that chip technology look like now, Richie? What, what what's the latest and greatest in terms of in terms of electronically timed um, technology? One of the coolest things that uh, ChronoTrack I, we use this. There's multiple companies that do chip equipment. IPico, uh, MyLabs. We use ChronoTrack, and just this summer they came out with. I mean, the chip technology has gotten a little bit better. It's still the same size. It's still, you know, it's nice to not have the foam. They don't need the foam behind the bib. But um, as far as uh, readers, they have a handheld reader now. It's all it's cellular, but it's also it can be Wi-Fi. It's literally it's like it's like a scanner that you'd see at maybe a ski area scanning the ski passes. We've used it at races, you know, we've tried it as a backup, which it's, you know, we already have a backup. So it's like a second backup, but after a race starts, we can just pull the trigger on the thing, zoom it around the crowd a little bit. Oh, that guy has his bib in his pocket. He's not running the race. Let's make sure he doesn't register. Oh, interesting. But something really cool that it could be used for trail race splits. You could just send somebody, they don't have to be trained. They don't have to be a trained timer. Here, go up in the chairlift and sit at the top of the mountain. And when the runners come, pull the trigger. When the runners come by, just aim it at them. So it's almost like, almost like a radar gun kind of thing that you yeah. aim at the person, pull a trigger, and it 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 reads that person's information um, without, have, without having to have contact with the individual. Right. And then wait one second. That's really, that's really fascinating, uh, fascinating technology, and what an what an interesting uh, evolution uh, in 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 the technology. I mean, I, you know, I, what I can think of is, I mean, what's what's currently used are you know these timing mats that you have to run over. But now, yeah, now 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 what you're showing me, it, it does almost look like a a scanner gun, like like. Yeah. I went There's to Home Depot the other day and I did self-checkout at Home Depot and uh, right. I had to scan the things that I bought um, right with a little, with a little handheld scanner. That's what you, that's what you are. That's what you just showed. Yeah. It, and then, like I say, I, I think it's going to be huge for the, for the trail mountain community. Cause again, it, well, I guess even if you don't have cell service, eventually when you get back, it, it holds all the data. Cause it's it's actually a Samsung phone that's hooked up to this device and you know, for med medical tents, Oh, these people came in the medical tent. So that the information can instantaneously be transmitted to the fit, you know, finish area. That's a, that's also a really good point and an interesting application. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking about that because it's a little bit outside of the, the timing scope of things, but as a, as a technology to be able to identify somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so looking into the future, what what's next coming down the line in terms of in terms of race timing? Like what what's the next what's the next big advance, do you think, in uh, in timing? Uh, it's hard to say. It could be scary. It could be cool and scary at the same time. Some people are talking about everybody just has a chip, whether it's in their watch or even under their skin. And they just 
register their chip when they show up at a race. Um, a friend of mine, actually, I'm, I'm heading down to Florida this weekend to help him. He's got a couple of races and he needs a little bit of, everyone's like, flies me down if he needs help and I'm available. Um, he's been playing around with some facial recognition software, which is neat, but also scary. Yeah. And he said he had it as a backup at a race and, and he had a, a race where, you know, Florida rain and humidity, the bibs were kind of disintegrating. So people were finishing without the bibs, but with what he already had in the system, he was able to identify just about everybody. And it's, again, it's neat, but it's scary as well. Yeah. And I, I wonder about that idea of, of people purchasing a permanent semi-permanent ID and that, that ID is then valid for all of the races that you participate in. I don't know. Like, yeah. In other words, it it would cut down on the single use stuff. Look, there's a lot of waste associated with, uh, with race organizations. And we don't think a whole lot about race bibs as being part of that, of that waste that's generated. Um, cause you know, bibs are cool and fancy and they've got nice designs on them. Some bibs actually have your name on them. People do people, some people save them, but not everybody does. But, but what if there was a way to, to, to reduce waste in terms of bibs or even chips? Cause there's waste associated with the, with the chips that are either adhered to or embedded in, in bibs. If you were assigned a universal bib, uh, I mean, do you think something like that is a possibility? I've heard, I've heard talk about it. I don't know if it will happen within my lifetime. I don't know if I want it to, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just the fact that something like from, from my, my thing is something like that is, is, useful as that could be for the running community it could be abused it's too easy for that to be abused uh that's a good point you know whether it's a hacker over in a you know foreign country that's tracking people or or what it is that's a good yeah that's that's a good point too right that i mean that's always that's always the potential catch with technology is that there are bad actors that 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 have ill or mal intent uh right that can uh, that can create chaos um well R- richie this has been it's been a fascinating conversation I, I was looking forward to this um and uh and 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 hearing your story and and helping to share your story uh thank you so much for for being on the show oh you're welcome i didn't think we'd have enough to talk about but uh i guess we did After hearing Richie tell the story of his photo and subsequent meeting of Bill Rogers, I dug a little deeper into the backstory. Turns out that 2009 Boston Marathon was Bill Rogers' final marathon. That April, he was 13 years removed from his last Boston Marathon finish. But perhaps more importantly, he was eight months post-prostate cancer surgery. There's no telling, but I wonder if that was the doctor he was referring to and the reason that photo was so important to him. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walkable podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. 
I'll be posting some supporting media on my X and Threads account at Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check it out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.